one of my mentors frequently says that God shapes leaders over a lifetime using the experiences of their life to shape them. And so with that being the case, I want to begin my time together today uh, by talking a little bit, little bit about my journey, because my personal journey into my personal journey in my own life, I think contributed greatly to uh, number one, even my openness to the missional conversation when I got to Princeton. And then secondly, uh, my desire to, in some way, lead a movement that was a reflection of that. And um, so with that being said, I'm going to begin by saying I believe that in my life, at least, the providence of God was not just revealed in some of the events of my life, but also some of the things as I reflect back on in my early adulthood that I just coincidentally remembered. And one thing I can frequently, one thing that I frequently uh, recall and think back on is my experience as a pastor's kid. Uh, my father was a pap uh, my father is a pastor. He's a pastor of um, a Baptist, has always been a pastor of a Baptist church in the National Baptist Convention of America, which was formed as a splinter group, uh, actually during the time of Dr. King, over their sociological and theological differences on the way the church should be involved in the civil rights movement. So Dr. King, Gartner Taylor, and others formed a group called the Progressive National Baptist Convention. And uh, there was another, Joseph Jackson, I think, uh, was his name, who gave leadership to the National Baptist Convention of America, which was a denomination my father was a part of. Uh, theologically, they both were kind of flowing in the same stream, but when it came to how that played out with the church's involvement in justice issues, uh, that was probably the line of distinction demarcation. So that was the church, the kind of church that I grew up in. It was a church, obviously, that was congregationalist in its polity, and for some reason, I remember church meetings. <laughs> um, and in my context, in the context of my father's church, the church at least that he served when I was growing up, I remember many of those meetings frequently and unfortunately becoming argumentative. And... Um, I realized early on that you could really tell people's values by what they argued about. That arguments are often a reflection of people's values. And if you listen hard enough and listen long enough, you can really see what's important to people. And I didn't have any theological training. I wasn't an ardent student of my Bible. I did the conventional Sunday school, um, as most of the kids did in my context. Yet, I remember sitting in some of those meetings saying to myself, I don't think we should be this upset about these kinds of things. Yeah. And, and I remember just feeling this degree of confusion about the dissonance I saw between the types of things they were telling us that were important in Sunday school and vacation Bible school and Baptist training union and things of that nature. And none of those things seemed to be the things that they were arguing about in the church meetings. And um, 
for some reason, e even in early adulthood, I recalled and remembered those experiences. Um, I, I also remember frequently some of the tension my father, as a leader, would attempt to try to mitigate and sort through as he was leading an African-American church whose demographic makeup and expression of ministry was shaped by social realities that no longer overtly existed. And in a post-segregation era, he was attempting to lead a church that was accustomed to serving a world that no longer existed. And I can recall some of the contentious conversations that I would overhear as I sat outside his office when he would engage with some of the leadership in his office regarding some of these issues. And I remember struggling to kind of understand that. I remember traveling during the summers and going away to college also and seeing similar types of trends in churches who were struggling trying to serve a world or struggling because they were set up to serve a world that no longer existed. Um, I, I, I felt and wrestled with that tension even though at that season of my life I had no interest in ministry. I remember during my college years, particularly my junior year, or so sophomore, junior year, beginning to sense this call to ministry, uh, deciding my senior year of college. I have my, actually I have it, it's in, I think it's in my office at the church. I have my acceptance letter in the Princeton frame. And I have it framed not because I got accepted in the Princeton. I have it framed because the date on it. And it's April 3rd, 2001. Which meant... <laughs> I was a month away from graduation, from college, and it was only into, it was only my second semester into my senior year that I decided to go to seminary. I was knee deep, head first, into this idea of law school. And for some reason, even though I had no interest in ministry, I had, I don't know, this interest in the church. and so. The long story short of that is I wrestled kind of with this, this tension until I got to seminary. And in 2002, I was taking a systematic theology course with, uh, that was team taught by Dr. Darrell Guder and Bruce McCormick. And I remember with a great degree, degree of clarity sitting in that particular class and getting introduced to language that gave explanation to the frustration I was feeling in my heart. And it was the missional conversation. And I felt like, and, I, and, and, and this, is, this is me, this is my quasi-reformed, neo-charismatic bent on this, <laughs> um, that by God's providence, I was exposed to some of the things I was exposed to even when I had little to no interest in ministry because God was using that in some way as a primer to make me open to a missional conversation 
that would really change the trajectory of my life and the trajectory of my ministry. Um, as I sat in that systematic theology class, uh, Bruce McCormick would teach uh, systematic theology from one perspective. He may teach on sanctification from his perspective. And then the next class, Dr. Gouda would come and would teach it from a missiological perspective. And for me, it awakened something in me that made me simply want to know more and explore this more. And so every class you taught, I took. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that was, I would look at it and say, what is he teaching? That's, that's what, I'm, what, I'm, what, I'm ta- uh, what, I'm, what I'm taking here. And um, this is what, what happened with me. Um, not only did my exposure to the missional conversation give language to and explanation to some of the frustration and the tension, the questions that I had about my experience. Um, secondly, it awakened in me an appetite to create the kind of community that became, for me, a po- a, a, I received a picture of possibility for that by actually being in these classes. So what happened was this, for me, this paradigmatic shift happened. I, I, I didn't know practically what it would look like, but there were, there were a few things, three, that really stuck out to me. First of all, it was this. It was that God is a missional God who through the incarnation became the first missionary. So I think Bart says Jesus, uh, God becomes the chooser and the chosen the elector and the elected. He is the good news and the one who proclaims the good news about God's self. So for me, that was a huge shift. Secondly, I saw that the church was to continue that mission. So in other words, the church didn't have a mission. God's mission had a church. And so John 20, 21 became this bedrock scripture for me where Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So you see the Father sending the Son, and the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, and then the Father, Son, and the Spirit sending the church. So there's this theme of this sentness that we see all throughout scripture. So that really stuck out to me. And then thirdly, which was probably the most consequential for me wanting to become a church planner, was this, is that Jesus not only modeled what the, what the mission of God was, but he modeled the way that mission should be accomplished through the incarnation. So that was huge for me incarnational ministry. And this is, this, <laughs> this is what was interesting <laughs> again. Um, because as these light bulbs went off for me, and as I look at how God kind of shaped and arranged and orchestrated my narrative, I remember sitting in those classes saying to myself, this is the only kind of church for me that is worth giving up law school for. That 
and and I didn't I don't think I felt cynicism or hostility toward it was just my experience and exposure to what happened with my father's leadership that experience was almost like discernment for me and I was quite clear that that was not something I would give my life to but when I when I was awakened to the possibility of what could happen if we followed the forgotten ways of Jesus and became the church which is actually God's apostle to the world it awakened something in me that sent me on this pursuit to figure out what would that look like for me as a leader and this is what was weird I'm not sure how familiar y'all are with the missional conversation uh, not in the academy, but at least in the church world with practitioners. Uh, the missional movement, it got real sexy, like in the late 2000s. It got sexy and weird. It was like, <laughs> it got to the point where it was like, I don't even know what missional is anymore. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was <laughs> uh, but the point is, during this particular time, I wasn't aware of any practitioners that were using this terminology at all. I wasn't aware of any pastors who were using, not saying that there weren't any, but I'm saying in my purview and in my relational orbit, there were not any that I knew that were using this terminology. Um, many wanted to be relevant, and, and I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't take issue with that, but there was not always a theological underpinning that served as a conviction for that. And so... Um, Sometimes it was just, if you talk, it was just a matter of self-preservation. And so I just kind of went on this pursuit and everything that I could read. You know, I read, uh, well, I'll talk a little bit about this later. I read, um, he was a Bolivian bishop in the Methodist church, um, Mortimer Arias, announcing the reign of God. I, I, I dove into everything I could actually read to just kind of wrap, wrap my head around this. And what was also a bit serendipitous is, at this time, I was serving at a local church that was a part of the same denomination that I had grown up in and had some of the same trends and tendencies of my father's church. So I'm serving, I initially was serving that church, um, it was a church I was attending when I got here, and so I started having this epiphany of sorts while I'm in the midst of serving this church. I go from a youth, within a matter of a year and a half, I go from a youth minister, because when I got there, the pastor was very young, he was 56, but was dealing with cancer. So he was sick and out of the pulpit. So some of, and he was really strategic with interns and most of the staff had kind of dissipated and taken other calls. And so I go from a youth minister to an associate minister. While I was an associate, he passes away. And the gentleman who was a, he was a senior here at PTS who should have, who should have been and, and in all likelihood would have been the successor. I mean, maybe a month before he passed, had taken a call at another church. So they asked me to be the interim 
while they, first of all, went through a season of grieving, and then secondly, begin the process of forming the pulpit committee to identify another leader. So I'm serving as an intern. <laughs> I'm serving as an intern. So I'm, I'm sitting in class. I mean, I'm sitting in service on Sunday, and then I'm coming to class on Monday. And it's just like, it's confused because, I mean, the church is grieving and mourning. And, and I want to, and I'm grieving in the sense that the pastor's gone, yet at the same time, I've got all of this stuff bubbling up on the inside of me um, at the same time. And so eventually what ends up happening is I was an interim for 60 days and then they asked me to be the interim for 90 days and then they asked me to be the interim for 120 days and, and then they asked me to be the interim for another 30 days and then one Saturday night a deacon called me and he said, yeah, the church has kind of been growing and we think we want you to be the pastor. Can you give us a resume? I said, I don't have, I don't have a resume. <laughs> like literally, literally, that, that's what happened. Um, and yeah, so within a matter of months, I made, I think I was a middler here and the senior pastor of a church. And um, at that time, I was in my mid-20s, I think. The median age of that congregation was about 60. So most, um, and I, I, I want to say, when it came to the leadership there, the, the, that age range would have been a bit higher. So I can say with a fair amount of confidence that the leadership team that I was dealing with was close to, most of them were close to three times my age. And I want to tell you why I brought that up, because these are people who had actually lived through some of the social realities that have historically shaped the makeup of and the expression of ministry of the African-American church. Many of them had migrated from the southeast to the northeast to escape some of those realities. So this is what's interesting. Their attachment to a model of ministry was not just theological. It was ethnic. And a deviation from that is interpreted as an, an act of abandonment against the African-American community. Because the African-American church was the hub the center for the center, the, the uh, a center for, and a catalyst for a lot of the social change that we saw take place in America. With that being the case, part of what it meant to be a black church was to express that value the same way it had been historically expressed. So I was wrestling not just with difference when it comes to ecclesiology, but also wrestling with the degree of empathy I had for people who wanted to hold on to an expression of church that for them saved their life. 
so as I kind of thought through that and wrestled with that as a senior leader, one of the things that I had to do was uh, obviously to kind of take some time and to reflect on my sense of call, uh, my sense of conviction, and what I believed was that the only way to faithfully adhere to some of those things that were, um, and I mean, I had this, I had this robust plan. We put it together in Dr. Hansen's class on um, conflict and change, and it was, it was the paper was amazing. I thought, and I was like, this is going, this is going to work great. I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go in. I'm going to cast this, and they're going to understand it. This, this, <laughs> this. Because my thought process was, if this is what they value, and it is something I also value, how is it that I can show them that the only way to be a faithful steward of that value is to adopt a missional imagination? Um, that if we care so much about some of these causes and the community that we feel called to serve, we need to do everything that we can to make sure we're positioning ourselves to faithfully serve them. And I thought, that's, that's good. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. I mean, Dr. Hansen gave me an A on the paper. I'm like, this is, this is going to be amazing. Uh, yeah, but it wasn't. It, it was, <laughs> so so what, I, what I attempted to do was prayerfully undertake this season of re- prayerfully undergo this initiative of reinvention. And so I did everything. I did 12-week teachings on vision castings. I, I tried to teach on the missional church without always using missional language. I, I um, had focus groups. I had what we would call lemon squeezes. And um, my conviction was that a missional church is a New Testament one. So I approached it in that way. And after about a year and a half of doing so, I realized that if this kind of revitalization was going to take place with this congregation, I was not the one to do it. So I think there are two questions, really, when you're looking at revitalization. Um, And we don't always know the answer to either one, I think, but I think there are two questions that, for me, beg to be asked. One is, can this be done? And two is, am I the one to lead it? I didn't know the answer to the first question, but I felt very strongly about the answer to the second one because I saw that my convictions were creating such contention in that local context that it was no longer a healthy environment. I mean, the tension was felt on Sundays and people felt like they had to take sides, but the conviction in, in my heart was a conviction that had captured me so deeply. As I said to you earlier, this was the only church, the only type of church that for me, I could say I'm willing to give the rest of my life to serve this. And um, 
it was interesting because during that my time period there, I think the church grew about it grew. It grew. I know I can't remember what they were when we got there, but it grew by 900 people. During that particular time, and you know, from the outside perspective, people would say it was vibrant, it was healthy, it was fruitful, but it's like a restaurant. When you go in the kitchen behind closed doors, it was very contentious and <laughs> and and it, and it and I think it was it, it it become unhealthy for the congregation, and I knew it was becoming unhealthy for me, um, not just emotionally and spiritually, but even physically. The toll that it was taking on on my body and stress, and I was in my twenties getting EKGs done and stress tests and things of that particular nature because you know i remember sometimes my um my phone would ring and depending on what number it was my heart would start racing with palpitations so i didn't know if it could be done there uh, what i did know is that i wasn't the one to do it and that i think kind of was the Impetus for me, offering my resignation, and based on the book that I had read by Morta Aramis, um, Announcing the Reign of God, that book became the inspiration for the naming of my church. So our team, we named the church Kingdom Church because announcing the reign of God was all about the kingdom of God. And... Um, You know, I, I would say this, in retrospect, I would say there were a few fundamental convictions at that point that we organized around. One was we decided that the Great Commission would be the mission we would organize around. Therefore, disciple-making would be the primary activity. And we believe that social justice then would become a natural consequence of people who would be discipled under the rule of God. So it's a little different because that justice aspect was not primary for us. Disciple making was. And we believed that when you have a community full of discipled people, then the outflow of that is going to be the organic addressing of justice issues. This was, and this was incredibly important, but I, I got a, oh gosh, I, <laughs> much of the criticism I got from that came from, you know, people within my own community, um, who I think assumed that if your value for justice issues was not expressed the way they had been expressed in the historic African American church, that you don't value those issues the way that they value them. Whereas from our perspective, it was we do value them. However, we believe that the scriptures offer us an alternative way to contribute to addressing of, to the addressing of those ills. And this is the way in which we feel called to do so. So it was having conviction about what we felt called to do without engaging in critique and criticism about the way someone else felt called to do it. And so for us, we organized primarily around um, discipleship, the great 
commission. And um, that meant a number of different things for us. I mean, in, in, for us in order to accomplish this, we, one of the things that we had to do was we, we had to set out to discover what ways culture had already discipled people in, in our area that were inconsistent with the value system of the kingdom of God. We had to see what social ills um, plagued the community that we felt called and equipped to address, but we organized primarily around that. So we had our, our, our big our worship gatherings, our Sunday morning services were organized with that in mind. Secondly, we organized around this idea that our expressions of church and methods for accomplishing the mission would be a reflection of our intention to think like a missionary. So this was weird because we engaged in some of the same types of activity that some people would associate with self-promotion or church promotion or cultivating consumerism among your parishioners. But for us, we wanted to put flesh on the gospel. We wanted to be incarnational. And uh, whereas, I don't know, some, some people may, may have observed it externally and said, that this was just an attempt to be relevant for us. It was really a, a theological conviction. And um, so we would ask ourselves, all right, if I, uh, the first year of our church was in Trenton and then we moved it to Ewan, but we would literally sit and ask ourselves, if I was from another country and I came to Trenton, how would I do church? We literally had those kinds of conversations. And that's kind of what drove some of the methods that we, that we undertook. Um, so we grew very quickly. Um, we were at about 1,000 people after our first year. Um, and, and as time and culture changed, we attempted, we always wanted to ask ourselves that question, if I wasn't from this country and I was here, how would I do church? And we attempted to make adjustments that we needed to make without violating our values. Um, and something happened where we saw, I, I would like to say this, you know, it was part theological, part of it, it wasn't. It was during the time of the recession, gas was sky high. We noticed just practically, we had a large contingent of our congregation that was traveling, it was about 200 people or so, that were traveling from the South Jersey area. And so part of it was even when we planted our church, we knew, or I, I felt very strongly, that we wanted to be not just a church that was a church plant, but a church planting church. And very practically, gas was high. We had about 200 people or so that were traveling from the South Jersey area to our Ewing campus. And so the, it's almost kind of like the perfect storm of sorts. And so that's when we began to explore practically the living out of this value of planning another church. And I think we were about five years into the life of our church when we planted this other location. And so we... Um, Probably undertook, probably took us about 16 months or so, 16, 18 months 
to actually kind of pull this off, but we literally sat down and had some of the same conversations that we had when we planted the church five years prior. We're going into this area. If we weren't from this area, how would we do church? What are ways in which this area is discipling people? Because I think that's important, too, that I think when it comes to disciple-making, we can erroneously assume that when you start dealing with people, you're dealing with a blank slate, and you aren't. Culture has already discipled them. So they have vantage points and viewpoints on everything, on church, on relationships, on everything. And so we have to look at what are some of the ways, what are, what are some of the social ills in this area? Because by virtue of that, you're going to be, be able to see some of the ways in which uh, cultures disciple them. So if it's an area that is characterized by an unusual high percentage of, of absentee fathers, then you're going to know that people there have grown accustomed to functioning without that presence. And um, so we asked ourselves some of those same questions. And one of the things that we did is uh, we wanted to model this whole idea of being a sent people with our church planting. So we went through this process where we really engaged members who were already attending this campus and we asked who would be willing to be sent to go to this other location. Um, and so we had people who didn't live in that area but who were willing to go and to help serve and create culture Two, two groups of people that we wanted. We said very practically, we want a group of Marines. We want missionaries. Marines go first. It means that you're going to work and to serve. And we want missionaries who are just going to go there and replicate and multiply the culture. So you may not serve. You may not volunteer. But you're going to be there to establish and be an extension of the culture. And so we planted that particular location. Some years passed, and just like the missional word, I began to sense that the kingdom word had kind of been co-opted by hyper-charismatics. And we were kind of being associated with something that was not necessarily consistent with our worldview and our theological stream. So we would say kingdom church, and whenever we would say that, people would say, okay, what's that? Oh, are you this? Are you that? And so one of the things that we begin to realize is, number one, even locally, the name was becoming more of a bridge, more of a barrier than a bridge. And then two, as we sense the need or the passion, the call to, the desire to plant more churches in different places, places where we did not have the quote-unquote brand recognition that we had here in New Jersey, we had to ask ourselves, was that, did we feel like that name was portable? And um, we felt like it was not. And so we went through the process of, this is why, you know, you heard me mention we called it Kingdom Church, but as you know, as you know right now, we're Change Church. And so we kind of went through the process of deciding um, what name, number one, communicates to our community internally, what our end game is. And then secondly, what 
name clearly communicates to people externally what our community is all about. And for us, because disciple making was what we organized around, it was change. And that's simply how we came up with that name. <laughs> and um, time progressed. Our influence began to increase a bit. Both our, our church and mine nationally. And uh, we began to notice that this happened supernaturally. Um, can I say that word? Yeah, I can. Okay. <laughs> um, so really, it was just, I mean, it was, it was weird because I was in a class with uh, a guy named, uh, in a doctoral class with a guy named Alan Roxburgh, and um, he was talking about this idea of missional map making. And one of the things he mentioned is, is that God is already at work in areas prior to people being sent there. And part of discerning where to go is discerning where God is working. Did we come to your class? Was that? I bet we visited your church. I don't know what class that was, but we visited your church in downtown LA. I think my feelings are hurt that you don't remember me, but <laughs> we'll, talk about it. we'll talk about it later. Right? A class from Fuller did come to your church, right? You just don't remember me. Okay, so it's no problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the things that we discovered is we discovered that there were these watch parties that were happening in the Southern California area. And um, we, through a number of different ways we found out about them, through some studies that had been done by my guy who leads kind of our social media stuff. It was, he had noticed the trend, and then our um, media guy had noticed the trend. And then just through conversations with people and a number of different ways, we began to find out about all of these watch parties that were happening in that area. And so we, um, I was on a trip to New Zealand, and I had to lay over in Los Angeles for something. I lay over in Los Angeles to go to Auckland. And, you know, I told our team, I said, well, on my way back, let's just, instead of me coming all the way back to Philly, I'll just stop in L.A. I get back on a Saturday. I'll do, I want to do something live with them. I want to meet some of them. So let's let it be known that I'm coming. Let's put it together. And so, you know, I just thought, you know, we were running to 20 people or so. And so we did it, and like 100 people showed up. And we were like, so all of y'all are watching. And, so, and it was the weirdest thing because when we would do, we do a number of different things here, but from time to time we do, uh, twice a year we do something called uh, Serve the City. And so, so for us, we want, so for us, the Great Commission isn't about just transforming people, it's about transforming places too. It's disciples and nations and so for us, um, we want to make that kind of impact in our city. And so we do this thing called Serve Day where we partner up primarily with nonprofits in the city. And we discover what are some of the needs that they have. And what we want to do is we want to donate the manpower and the man hours on a Saturday to take care of those needs so that that's an expense they don't have to incur. 
And so whether it's cleaning up parks, whether it's fixing stuff, whether it's whatever. So we would be doing that in New Jersey, and we found out that there were people who were seeing that we were doing this in New Jersey, and they were organizing and doing the same thing in Los Angeles. And so for us, we saw, we believe God is at work doing something there. And so, you know, through a series of planning and things of that particular nature, we launched a, what we call a missional community. I mean, some people call it a missional community. But we just call it an extension site because we say missional community. They don't know what that means. Um, but we started an extension site in the Los Angeles area. And... Um, it is a completely different expression of church than the way we do it here in New Jersey. And we're okay with that because we believe as long as some fundamentals, are be- some fundamentals and some non-negotiables for us are being met, we're okay with the church being expressed different ways. And for me, at least, that's part of what it means to think like a missionary. So it's a little completely different. And, um, yeah, so long story short is I'll kind of wrap up with this. And, you know, recently we started exploring what other part of the country we felt like we wanted to do this. And so we're now in the groundwork stages of um, also planning a campus in Orlando, Florida, uh, which we will um, begin some groundwork. We're beginning the groundwork now, but we'll begin some events and some things uh, of that nature for it. In August, actually, August of this year, and um, we'll be probably looking out, rolling out things more consistently in the beginning of, beginning of 2019. So I shared all that. I know it's a bit practical. Hopefully, the why was interweaved throughout my conversation. But a few, I want, I want, I want to share a few. You know, this theme is why, and for me, I want to give a few closing thoughts on why I did it as I reflect back on my journey. One, I did it because I believe missional churches are faithful to the witness of scripture. In other words, I believe a missional church is a biblical one. So that's a conviction of mine. That's why I did it. Two, I did it because I believe missional churches are the only way you can avoid eventually being a church that is relevant to a world that no longer exists. I believe that becoming a missional church is the only way you can avoid eventually being a church that is relevant to a world that no longer exists. Three, I did it because I believe without missional churches, some people won't have healthy alternatives. I think Michelangelo said, he's quoted as saying, criticize by creating. And I think one of the things that can happen, particularly with thought leaders, is that we can be incredibly critical and diagnostic about what churches should be doing more of and doing differently. Where, for me, I believe one of the ways you remedy that is to create alternatives that mirror and model what you believe healthy Christian communities should look like. And so for us, that's the why when it comes to getting these types of churches 
in as many places in the country and even internationally as we can because we want to create healthy alternatives. So instead of criticizing, we just we, we want to create. Um, for I did it because a missional church was the only way I could marry my passion for personal discipleship and cultural impact. And I've said this twice already. For me, it bears repeating. I did it because a missional church is the only kind of church I feel is worth me giving my life to.